The market, if by that you mean the New York Stock Exchange, stayed at 44 Wall Street all week. It didn't move at all? No. They didn't have any moving trucks? I don't think so. Uh, Anyway. Market was frozen solid, just like Texas. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach. Do do you see how you've, over the years, slowly eroded down my discomfort by assuming that boys and girls are listening and that it's going to be an exciting episode? I'm glad we did that. You finally came around. I'm feeling very excited. Can we say that in a monotone? You can tell by my tone of voice. Economists, when they get very excited, their monotone becomes more intense. Mm. On the other hand, oh wait, sorry, that's just another economist thing. This is The Personal Wealth Coach. I'm Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. At least I think I'm Jeff McClure. Uh, We, full disclosure, first thing we should say is that we are both bald and bearded. Uh, we are also the personal wealth coach uh, for this radio program. We are the program that also coincidentally is the name, or not coincidentally, is the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Uh, investment yep. advisory firms offer fiduciary advice, which is not what you're getting on the radio, because in order to offer fiduciary advice, we'd actually have to know all of you and then only give the advice that's appropriate to you to you rather than kind of blanket. So what are we doing? Education. Uh, We answer questions, and this is a good moment to say if you want to email in a question, uh, the email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's the personal wealth coach or Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie. All right, so you've got some disclosures as well. Uh, Let's see. The information we present on this radio program, is it a program or an app? This this radio program, it's programmed that we're content here, so it's pre-arranged that we're there. But you can also listen streaming on the web and through your phone, and we're also podcasting. Well, you so know, it's something. Over the years, things that used to be called programs gradually became software. And from software, they turned into apps. So I wondered if we graduated to the level of app yet Mm. i guess that's how it would depend on how people use us because that would be the application if they punch us with their fingers and it's an app yeah i think that would be it um the information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources deemed we deem to be reliable but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And above all, you should not make buy or sell decisions based on what you hear on this radio program. That's absolutely correct. That's not just a little disclosure, folks. This is something, if you're making a buy or a sell in the market, you need to know why you're doing it. And it shouldn't be because of a hot tip from somebody you don't know. Was that the our, last of the disclosures? Let's see. Or hot tip from somebody you do know. Oh, yeah. Or from somebody you do know. Maybe even more in that case. Uh, so we have a little moment of wrenching our arms out of socket a moment to pat ourselves on the back for predicting something. Um, 
we do this as what we consider a public service. Uh, maybe a private service, because it's not the whole public that listens. Anyway. Some of the public does. Would you like to tell us what happened in the market this week? The market, if by that you mean the New York Stock Exchange, stayed at 44 Wall Street all week. It didn't move at all? Nope. They didn't have any moving trucks? I don't think so. Uh, mar- anyway. Market was frozen solid, just like Texas. We, we use the standard Poor's 500 stock index, otherwise affectionately known as SPX, uh, our preferred if sometimes rational indicator of the U.S. stock market, as I wrote in the first line of the newsletter. Anyway, on Tuesday, it went to record highs, got really excited, and then it started sagging. And the interesting thing, what sagged in the market was the big tech stocks that historically have res- driven this market to record highs. And the end, in the end, the market lost, the S&P 500 lost 0.71% for a week, which isn't much, but when you consider the fact that it was roaring ahead on Tuesday and then started slowing down, that's sort of interesting. It ended Friday at 3906.71, if that means anything to you. Very close to 4,000, and every time it gets any closer to 4,000, it got up to 3950, 3955, I think, on Tuesday. And uh, it... Uh, Every time it starts closing in on 4,000, it backs off. And that's very typical, by the way. People get scared when they see round numbers. It's up 4% year to date and 10% for the trailing three months. For those of you who are concerned about the election causing the market to crash, uh, it's gained, it's been rising. If you annualize the rise over the last three months, it's 40% rise, but 40, we don't do that with market. The one year returns are probably going to look really weird in the near future, by the way. Yeah. Because just not just, probably. They are going to look very strange in the near future. <laughs> we're entering into the period when the pandemic was recognized by the market and it went into a nosedive. So we're not going to pay much attention to the one year returns for a little bit. You might hear returns like we made a hundred percent year over year or things terms to that effect. And that's because the market was down forty plus percent when uh, the pandemic was really recognized? Yeah, if you go midday, it, was, it finally dropped 50%, which is a standard drop in a, ser- in a pretty serious bear market. So that was a serious bear market. It just didn't last very long. And uh, if you're down 50% and you get back, say you've got $100 in your account and you drop down to 50, if you measure from the 50 and you're back to 100%, it looks like you've got a great return. And the recovery's been nice. But if you got more than 100% return, it means you're above where you were pre-pandemic in the very near future. So yep. don't be surprised to see some absolutely absurd-looking numbers coming out and maybe even headlines about them. You just have to understand we're measuring from the extreme bottom. We look at the other end of the SPX, the Standard Poor's 502. Uh, there's the upper end where the large-cap growth stocks are that have been driving this market, and they have been soaring and rushing ahead of the rest of the market. But if you look at the other end, which is mid-cap value, value and growth being opposites, and mid-cap being the smaller stocks in the S&P 500, the mid-cap value index, it's made the CRSP, U.S. mid-cap value index, rose nearly 1% for the week and is now ahead 8.3% year-to-date, which is a lot more, obviously, than the S&P 500, which means there's a market rotation going on. Uh, I hope it continues because it's a healthy market rotation. Mid-cap value is the foundation of the market. Uh, and the when the top gets too far above its foundation, or the foundation's going down and the, and the top 
large cap growth companies are going up and that continues for an extended period of time, it usually is the prelude to a market crash. But we're seeing the reverse of that this year with a with the mid cap value index going up much more than the S&P 500, which is a really healthy indication that the market's got legs, as we say. Um, the yield on the U.S. Treasury 10-year note is important. If, you're, if you've been following us for any length of time, you know that through all of last year and going into the beginning of this year, it has been below 1%. It's now at 1.34%. That is a 34% gain over where it was at the beginning of the year. That is a heck of a gain in, in yield on the on the uh, 10-year note. Now, if you happen to be holding a 10-year note or holding bonds as these interest rates go up, you'll notice their market value is declining, and that's going to make things uh, unhappy for you, perhaps. Uh, we've seen some forecasts of a bond market sell-off in the near future, but I believe it when I see it. The Treasury yield curve is nice and steep and getting steeper. The U.S. 30-year Treasury bond which is the furthest one out there on the yield curve is up above 2% now. And that's really important because the 2% barrier was like the 1% barrier on the 10 year. In other words, the bond market is saying we got some good stuff coming. Yeah. Yes, sir. When we say a yield curve, there's a lot of people that don't have a clue what we're talking about there, nor necessarily should they, but we'll tell you anyway. Um, the yield curve is when you kind of graph out the really short maturity bonds, and if you think of a bond as just a loan at an interest rate, somebody's got to pay it back. If you're buying a bond, you're really giving someone a loan. So you're giving companies or the U.S. Treasury a loan when, you buy, when you're buying a 10-year Treasury bond or note, you're, you're actually buying, you're loaning the government money. This is how we make our deficit spending. Uh, when you plot that out from things that are, about to come due in a month, all the way out to things that are coming due in 30 years, throughout history of loaning, it's important to look for the higher interest rates being out the longest period. So if you're getting a house refinance, you should expect to see your 15-year mortgage have a lower interest rate than a 30-year mortgage because whoever's loaning you the money is locking up for a long period of time money. And the longer they lock it up, the more they want to be paid. That's a very healthy experience. It turns unhealthy when a lot of people dump a bunch of money into different aspects of that market. It makes the curve get upside down, inverted. And that's been a pretty reliable gauge for when a recession's coming. Um, when we go back to the year 2019, which seems like three decades ago at this point, throughout the majority of 2019, we had an inverted yield curve. It was saying, hey, we may have a recession coming up. And we were talking about we're likely to have a rec recession coming up. The pandemic was a wild card in the middle of an expected recession, which made it a lot worse, a lot worse. But the, the yield curve is back to positive, which means that people are making decisions that lead us to think that they're more optimistic about the future. Uh, and that's, that's my, I'm not sure that that was less technical than the way you said it, but it was an attempt. Well, the steeper the yield curve, the, the more the market is, the bond market is predicting vigorous economy in the future. Because yes. the steeper the yield curve as interest rates go up, towards the far end of the yield curve, out around 10 to 30 years. 
that means that the market is anticipating that there will be a lot of demand for for loans. There'll be that there will be inflation because we economy is running really really fast, and there will be demand for loans. And it's a good sign up to a point. Obviously, if it gets too crazy, it it can go overboard. But it's a good sign at this point. We've been having record low interest rates, and now the interest rates are gradually working their way back to normal. As a matter of fact, the uh, 30-year bond is up above where it was a year ago. Now, that's still pretty low historically. Back in 2017, 2018, going into 2019, the 30-year bond was trading in the 3.5% range. And so we got a long ways to go to get completely back to normal, but we're headed there, and that's a good sign. The other thing that's uh, positive is oil is $59. Let's see, what was it? Uh, $59.09 per barrel Fridays, the end of day Friday. 59 and one cents at this point. So it's $59 a barrel roughly, which is a whole lot better than negative 34 and a whole lot better than the below $40 level we saw before. And Texas oil drillers and frackers would love to get started again if they can just get the ice off their rigs. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a good sign. Around $60 a barrel is where uh, oil was before the pandemic. So things are coming back to normal gradually. Uh, and all these, the reason we report on what's going on in the bond market and what's going on in the oil market is those are two of the more reliable indicators of what a lot of people who are spending a lot of money and betting a lot of money on the deal are thinking is going to happen to the economy in the future. When oil prices get absurdly low, that's because they're forecasting really low activity in the economy. When oil prices rise up, it's because they're forecasting better activity in the economy. Now, supply has something to do with it, too. It has a lot to do with it. But the price of oil and the Treasury yield curve and the yield on the 10-year note are very important in, in figuring out what we think is going to happen in the economy. And both of them are saying we're getting healthy. We're, getting, we're coming back to normal. Oh, I think that wraps up our conversation about what happened in the market. We've got a lot of other news, but before we get to that, we've got some questions already. John, our most faithful questioner, he's questing constantly to find better solutions, which just as a side note, that's where the word quest and question are similar in that way. It's not funny when you have to explain a joke, is it? No, but he's not questing for the Holy Grail. No, no, not for the Holy Grail. Uh, he has a question on here. He's got a couple of questions. One of them is, I've read that green and other high-tech requires certain metals like lithium, cobalt, indium, gallium, and others that are dependent on other countries to export to us. No one knows the future, but is this another supply chain challenge waiting to happen if world economics go south? Yes. Next question, please. Um, no, <laughs> yes, it is a problem. Um, and China has recently made some very muted and indirect threats that it may close off some of its rare earth metals to other manufacturers, which is likely to blow up in their face. The reason why, well, let's kind of, you mentioned green and other high tech. Lithium, for instance, the first thing that you have listed here. These are all called rare earth metals, not because they're rare, but that's because somebody named them that. The other, the other use for it and the intense use for it, for instance, the F-35 fighter, which is our air superiority fighter, uses a lot of rare earths in its electronics. Right. 
So batteries for your laptop, for your cell phone, for basically anything that has a battery that you can recharge is going to come from this. Now, it is dirty to mine. And the former number one country on the planet for exports and mining period of rare earth metals was the United States and specifically California. Um, what What is, uh, there, there's a, for quite some time, we were a about uh, 70 to 80% of the world's rare earth supply. Um, there, there's, a, there's a mine in, in California, and it's, it's near the border with Nevada, and I want to make a point to drive by it at some point. It's called Mountain Pass Mine, and it's got a lot of rare earths. It's uh, about 8% or 9% by volume in the dirt. What does that mean? Well, it's more like one part in a million to 10 million when you've got a big gold mine. So to have 8% be rare earth is pretty pretty big deal. What's the problem? Why did we shut it down or why didn't it work out in California? It's dirty. It is really, really, really dirty to mine these minerals. Uh, and if they get into the groundwater, it can really mess things up. This is worse than lead. It's worse than a lot of the other things that could leach into groundwater. So it's dangerous and dirty. Well, earth is dirty. Earth is dirt. Yeah, of, of course it's dirty. Rare, rare earth would be rare dirty. It's rarely dirty. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. The so with that, The problem with that mine is the fact that California says you have to take a lot of precautions so that you don't wreck all the water downstream and poisonous in California, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. At the same time, China's got less of a concern in that area. So we said, hey, if we don't, this is another case of exporting pollution. Hey, if we don't need to make our area dirty, not in my backyard, we'll get it from somebody else. Well, what we did in the process is made ourselves nearly 100% dependent, and the rest of the world for that matter, on China for almost all electronics. And it's, you know, when people say green, I, I want to challenge that word. I know it's used a lot. It's used by both Republicans and Democrats when they talk about green energy or they talk about green technology. Is, is a battery-driven car cleaner than an uh, internal combustion automobile? And the answer is maybe. Nobody's really sure. Uh, it takes a lot to make both of them, and they are, in, I mean, just think where all the metal came from. It didn't come from people's pockets. Most of that's not recycled. So it's dirty to manufacture things. So the whole concept of a, a green car versus a, a not green car, I think it's, it, it's near absurd, but it's become common lingo. But I, I'm not saying that to challenge you, John. It's basically this concept that every time somebody talks about green energy or green technology, I mean, think about the amount of copper that had to be mined to put the lines in to go out to West Texas so that our wind, and wind energy out there could get back to the cities. And think about the absolute volume that had to come out of somewhere and get refined with things being burned and all that. So, so the constant, it may be slightly greener, <laughs> but I think the word green, it gets used and it's, 
it's losing its meaning because it's becoming political. So anyway, what can we do? What is this? Is this is a supply chain poster child? We were talking about this seven years ago. We were talking about this twelve years ago. Uh, I went back through some of our conversations over the last several weeks, and we were talking about rare earths when uh, China really started taking off in the late nineties. Well, that's when we started our program. And we talked about how it is a, it's a nice blessing that China is willing to take all the pollution from mining all of this rare earth, but it may make us dependent on China. And we were resoundingly laughed at because China was making cheap gadgets that didn't do a whole lot, but they were cheap, so you could get a lot of them. Not that they've stopped doing that, but they also make higher quality stuff now as well. So... Uh, that's not me patting ourselves on the back. This is a pretty blatant and visible thing that a lot of people commented about when it was going on, when it was first starting. And now coming the, the company that has owned the California mine, um, well, that mine has been shut down due to bankruptcy multiple times. It's been shut down during for EPA and the California uh, Commission on, what what is it called, the I don't know the California State um, Inspector Office, but it's been shut down multiple times over that time period. It was recently bought by a company that says, hey, we're going to concentrate on this so we're not dependent on China. They still have to mine it cleanly. So it's still going to be more expensive than getting it from China, but it means that we're not ultra-dependent for our air-dominance fighter aircraft from China when we might be using them to defend ourselves from China. So anyway, there, that's my, this is one of my favorite conversations. I think John actually already knew that though. I think he wanted to get me on a roll talking about this. This is a supply chain issue. Uh, it's similar to a lot of other ones that we have. We only mine about 6% of the iron that we use in the United States. That's, huge we we manufacture about 70 percent of our own steel it's kind of like opec china is the dominant player in supplying rares to the rest of the world just like opec was the dominant player in supplying oil to the rest of the world and it drove a scientific revolution in the united states that resulted in fracking right so now we are the number one producer of oil in the world and if China wants us to become the number one producer of rare earths in the world, again, all they have to do is threaten to cut us off, and they just did. Right. So, in fact, you will see government subsidies. You will see lots of effort made to get those mines in California working again so and we can build with rare earths. There's hopefully going to be a big push to doing it cleanly because one of the major th impacts of fracking is that we've gotten to test different methods of cleaning up after fracking. There's lots of very interesting geological studies on this. Um, Texas, from near the beginning, has required frackers to pump out the acid bath that they frack with down there. And for those of you, fracking is basically underground, high-pressure um, acid 
being used to eat away shale so that they can pull the different usable components out of it really easily. It's kind of like the way a, a, a fly eats, if you ever saw the movie The Fly. Well, that's what's happening in fracking. Texas, from the beginning, said, all right, when you pump all that stuff in there, you actually have to pull it back out and do something safe with it. Don't just leave it down there. This is Texas. I mean, this is not a, a state known for uh, being hard on business. Well, there was this kind of a uproar amongst the frackers saying, well, Oklahoma's not making us do that. But at the same time, new corporations were formed to take on that asset after it had been pumped out of the well again to clean it up a little bit and then recycle it and use it at the next fracking location. And what wound up happening here is that the profit margins got bigger because it cost less money to reuse the acid than to come up with that particular mix. And almost every fracking company has a different proprietary mix of acids that they use. Some of them are extremely effective, but it's expensive. And when you're reusing it, it's less expensive. And the original thought was pulling this stuff out of the ground was going to be insanely expensive. What are you going to do with it? We're going to have to make like big, weird, glass-lined metal storage tanks to put this stuff in and store it for millennia. Um, But then we realized, hey, we don't have to keep producing this stuff. We can start reusing it. They haven't done that to a great extent in Oklahoma. And... There's an earthquake problem because of it, because the acid doesn't stop eating the rock around it when it's sitting there. I mean, it's not high pressure anymore, so it's not actively massively eating into it, but it destabilizes the whole rock layer. So you have these big, Oklahoma is now the number one earthquake center in North America. Not because they're on a fault line, but because they keep making new fault lines. So this concept of technology needing to be able to clean up for itself and doing it profitably is the very nature of American business. Anytime people say, no, I'm not going to clean up after myself, I can be as dirty as I want, they're going to get exported. They're going to get shut down. Uh, we we all made a decision in the 1970s when rivers were actively on fire and rain was eating through umbrellas that we needed to clean up a bit. Uh, and that's not, you know, that's not a Democrat or Republican thing, just as a side note. Nobody wants acid rain. <laughs> if you go to the most, Ted Cruz agrees with Bernie Sanders on this one. No acid rain, please. Uh, so, there are still some people that kind of remember the early arguments about that uh, and go back to this, well, I don't think it's important. I think everybody thinks it's important to a great extent if you're in business today. But our motivation to cleaning up after ourselves, sometimes you need regulation there. That's the, that's, this, this is the really tough part. How do you keep business fair and not damaging the people around it without regulation. And this is, I can talk about capitalism and the roots of capitalism being in that. And uh, Adam Smith's famous line about the invisible hand, and Adam Smith is the father of capitalism, said is that, let me see if I can paraphrase this, it's close to the actual quote, but 
it'll be paraphrased a little. Um, so long as you leave people to function in their own best interest, so long as it doesn't impede the interests of those around them, the whole society will be lifted as if by an invisible hand. The second kind of middle part of that quote about so long as it doesn't impede the interests around them is left off of a lot of people's understanding of what capitalism is. That's long-term a really bad idea. Just go to Uzbekistan or Russia and look at their chemical dump facilities that they, they have just wiped out whole areas that will never be profitable, at least in anybody's lifetime that's alive today. So there, I just walked all the way around regulation and deregulation and saying we've got to have some kind of comfortable balance that doesn't impede business, but also doesn't poison everybody around it. Uh, so I have now made both the Republicans and the Democrats angry at me. You must be right then. Well, do you have something to talk about? Well, I like to talk about the economy a little bit, uh, and we haven't talked about the home mortgage hack. Oh, yeah. John. Yeah. I'll talk about the home mortgage hack. He's, he's, I think John has seen an ad, and I've seen the ads, various hacks that, that people want to sell you something to protect you against. Home mortgage hack is, almost, hack is an almost non-existent issue. Uh, the issue of somehow getting hold of your uh, somehow going to the bank and getting into your account where you've got your mortgage and getting a hold of your deed to your house and selling your house out from under you. I researched the heck out of that a little while back and I couldn't find an instance where it actually happened anywhere. Yeah. I mean, this is what title searches are about. This is why we have them because people used to do this kind of hack. Now, let me tell one place where the hack is still dangerous. Um, mortgages usually run for 30 plus years, especially with interest rates as low as they are, there are people that go out and get these old mortgages that are no longer even being used. Some of them have been paid off early. Some of them were refinanced, but they're at significantly higher interest rates than are generally available today. So they make a portfolio of these defunct mortgages that you don't know are defunct and say, look, this is our package of mortgages and it's paying us 6%. And that's the number that I've seen most recently, most often for hacks on buying mortgage-backed securities is that it's a 6% uh, AAA. Um, and, but you can't buy it through a normal establishment. You have to go through this special ad. Yeah, that's, that's generally a good sign that there's a hack involved, that there's somebody bad involved is saying, you can't do this the normal way. You have to do it my secret way where you pay me money. You really don't have a lot of threat, particularly in Texas, to your... To your home title whether or not you have a mortgage uh it's the 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 safeguards around that that are pretty thick and hacking banks just doesn't happen i mean it's possible at some point that a bank will get hacked but it's pretty rare and you're the only way that you're going to lose money in the bank from a hack is if you give somebody your password and, and your username and they're able to go to your bank account and empty it out and I can say one other thing, and this is this is kind of a vestige from when the title was an actual piece of paper all the time. Quite often, it's not a piece of paper anymore. Quite often, your title is electronic, at least when the banks are in, when they're foreclosing on things and so on. There's quite often an electronic version of the title. So getting the title, and, and just this is even more important, I think, the bank generally doesn't hold your title. 
they have a lien on your title. And when you get it paid off, people say, well, wait, the bank sends me a title. They don't always do that anymore, as a side note, because it's a fee that they did, and it was kind of out of the goodness of their heart. A lot of times, if you want the title, you actually have to go to the county and say, look, this is the certificate that says I paid off my loan, and then they can remove the lien from your title. So that it's really hard to put a lien on a title these days in Texas because there were some people that were doing it fraudulently to make Texas secede from the union again uh, about 10 years ago. And the uh, local folks got fed up with it. So the legislature passed some acts saying, hey, you can't do that. You can't put liens on people's titles without their knowledge or without recourse. So if the, if you find a lien on there, at, in order to do it, they've got to have the person who is owed which means it's easy to find them and sue them. And there are attorneys that love that kind of case. You wanted to talk about the economy. Yep. Um, if you'd like to send in a question, and we would really like it if you could help, because I got my second Moderna vaccine yesterday, and I am flying a little bit below the clouds. Um, I've got a fever and a bit achy. It's not as bad as people that actually get COVID, but... I'm a little less energetic than usual. So if you want to send in a question that you have, the email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com and or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. One day we'll be able to say that in unison again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Easy for you to say. Uh, for those of you that used to listen to us before the pandemic when we were actually in the studio, uh, we used to say our names together. Isn't that amazing? We, we knew how to say our, our names. But during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do it together. So... It's another sad, sad event based on the pandemic of, what are we going to call this one? I think we should call it the Forgotten Depression. No, that's from 100 years ago. Yeah, but it happened 100 years ago the same way. So we could call this the Forgotten Depression, but we still remember it. Well, we could call it Forgotten Depression number two. We'll forget it pretty quickly, I'll guarantee you. Yeah, people are already forgetting that the market was down 50%. That's a fascinating thing to me that uh, an event that big or this is one that I hear quite regularly people that are quite economically astute that follow this stuff when we say negative $37 a barrel they laugh like we're joking like it was less than a year ago oh, yeah. <laughs> that you're was talking, real you're talking about oil here right yeah well we got a strange economic situation going on and we wrote about it in the newsletter but it's still very real We've got, uh, there's a company called IHS Market, which, by the way, Microsoft Word always wants to change to HIS Market. And the uh, market isn't spelled correctly either. So Microsoft Word wants to change it to his market instead of... IHS Market. Right. Anyway, uh, does a purchasing manager's index each month, in the middle of the month, 
and they do it all around the globe. By the way, the United States is in really good shape on that. The services index is at 58.9, and the uh, manufacturing index is 57.7, where 50 is at the, the number 50 on their index is the difference between growth and contraction. If it's above 50, it's growth. If it's below 50, it's contraction. So we're doing really well in the United States in both uh, both services and in uh, manufacturing as far as growth is concerned. Now, we're not back. We're still about 80% of where we were a year ago as far as the size of the economy and growth and services, but we're growing very nicely. Uh, by the way, just a, as a side note, uh, Europe is having the reverse. Their numbers are generally below 50 and they're slipping back into recession. So I guess you, it's always good to know that the other guy is worse off than you are, but not necessarily good doesn't, overall. doesn't really help us to know that they're not doing well. That's, I mean. But the, the point is we have this serious growth according to the Purchasing Managers Index. By the way, why does a purchasing manager know more than other people do? Because when businesses are about to do something, they buy things in advance. If a restaurant in, in, anticipates more people eating there, they will buy more food in advance. Uh, they have to have it to serve it. If you're, if a manufacturing industry wants to make more stuff in the future because they're getting more orders in, then their purchasing managers are told to buy more stuff so they can make more stuff. So the purchasing managers have the advance word on what's going on in companies across the country. The purchasing manager indexes in the United States are very, very healthy. Matter of fact, they're some of the highest we've ever seen. Now, at the same time, this last week, we had a lot of people laid off, like 861,000, and that's seasonally adjusted, according to the Labor Department. 861,000 people laid off in a time when both manufacturing and services is doing wonderful growth is a weird situation. Uh, normally, in, in the recessions in the past, what we've seen is when the Purchasing managers are saying, we're not getting as much business in as we used to, so their guidance is below 50. We start to see layoffs, and it gets way below 50. We see more layoffs. We saw that in the 2007 through 9 recession. We saw that in 2000 through, we saw that in 2015. We've seen it a lot of times. Here's the weird thing. We have this very healthy growth, growth going on, both in services and in manufacturing. As a matter of fact, when we looked at the consumer spending, retail spending, which is up a bunch this in January, a lot of money, a lot more money was being spent in bars and restaurants. But at the same time, we're seeing a layoff rate that's a it's eight hundred sixty one thousand, which is four more than four times the normal layoff rate that we saw before the recession, before the pandemic. So why are people getting laid off while businesses are reporting that things are going well? And that's a big question. And there's several possible answers to that that I think are important to recognize. One, businesses that have gone out of business begin and laid everybody off because they went out of business, obviously don't have a purchasing manager to survey. Right. So you're missing some of the negatives. The other side of it is, um, even in the manufacturing side, when we look at it, which is going great guns right now, by the way, because people are buying a lot of things like washing machines and electronics and cars and trucks. Uh, there's a critical shortage of Ford F-150s, by the way. Uh, because of computer chip shortages. Uh, and so they, you have to get in a waiting list to, in most places to buy a Ford F-150 pickup. I don't know why the whole country decided they wanted to buy F-150s, but they apparently did. Well, it's I, been the most I, popular truck for a long time. 
Well, they looked at Texas where we, you, everybody has, most people have, well, not most people, but you see pickup trucks everywhere. And we're in the Northeast, they don't, and I guess they decided they wanted to be more like Texas. Anyway, the the point is, we have these two conflicting numbers coming out, actually three conflicting numbers, because retail sales are up dramatically, over 4%, just 4.7% in January alone. That's not an annualized number. Retail sales jumped 4.7% in January, which is good because the previous three months they were down. And it was credited to the uh, to the stimulus checks coming in. But the point is we have growth in retail sales. We have growth in manufacturing. We have growth in services. And we're laying people off at four times the rate we did before the pandemic. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is automation. There's been a lot of investment in automation during the pandemic because People, uh, very frankly, people got sick, and we've seen a lot of this around the country. The uh, the longshoremen being sick is one of the reasons that ships are backed up off the West Coast right now, and that we, that's a whole other story uh, where we're going to talk about logistics. But we have this strange bifurcation in the numbers that we're seeing. And I think it's probably going to get worse more. And we're, we're basically echoing what happened in the 1920s. Right. Just like the 1920-21 recession, we're repeating it. The pandemic uh, we had in the, theoretically in 1918, but it affected the economy in 2021. We're seeing that again. Um, for some reason or another, and I don't think there's anything magic about a 100-year number, but it's working out. We're seeing the same things repeat. And what we saw in the early 1920s, which built up through the rest of the decade, was higher and higher and higher unemployment, not in the sense of percentage perhaps, but in the sense of people getting laid off and not being able to find work because of increased automation. And increased automation, of course, in the 1920s was the internal combustion engine, the tractor replacing the mule, uh, the pickup player and the small truck replacing the buggy and pulled by horses. So what we've got is a situation where because of the illnesses that people saw, that businesses saw, they rec- they're recognizing something, and that is it's less expensive to make a big investment right now with, with low interest rates out there in automation and not employ so many people. Manufacturing has the highest number, as well up till this, until this month, has had the highest market index number as far as growth is concerned. But if you go down and dig deep into the manufacturing numbers on those uh, purchasing manager uh, index numbers, you find out that their labor numbers are low in the 40s. In other words, even though their their manufacturing facilities are are growing, even though they are making more stuff and they're not putting more, they're they're manufacturing more stuff. They're planning to manufacture even more. They are net laying off people in manufacturing. And it's not because it's being sent overseas. It's because it's being it's being automated here in the United States. And I think it's by the by the way something that's going to happen to the rare earths. We had that question a little, a little earlier. I think what'll happen is uh, we'll be able to get some federal subsidies for rare earths because they're necessary for defense, and so we can afford to manufacture rare earths in California or wherever we find them. Let, let's make sure everybody a, knows when we say rare earth, we mean rare earth mineral because there are some. Uh, Flat earthers that use it differently? They do? Yeah. Anyway, the point is these minerals that we need for high-tech things uh, like F-35 jets, 
They're there in the United States. It's just far more expensive to manufacture them in the United States because we don't want to pollute the environment, which is a good thing, by the way. So if the government would subsidize, if the federal government and the state governments would subsidize the, man, the, the extraction of these rare earths so that we can be competitive as far as the price is concerned, then it would be good for our national defense. And I'm hoping we have that as a policy, an industrial policy in the United States. Now, this is, this is a stretch because Republicans really don't want a whole lot of restrictions on what can happen at all. So they want to say, open up the mine in California, remove all the restrictions and let them go. Well, California doesn't want them to do that because, one, it's California, but two, it's really, really dirty. It really is. Well, it's more than just dirty. When the water supply in California is as critical as it is and you have the rare earths manufactured upstream in a mountain pass or dug out of the ground up there and manufactured and filtered and so on, and when you've got a lot of pollutants up there, you don't put them behind an earth dam and like they did in, uh, like Rio Tinto did in, in, uh, in South America and have the dam collapse and have polluted water come flooding down into the rest of California. I don't think anybody wants that. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the point, is that we need to do this from a perspective. I think the subsidies should go into developing technology to make it profitable to keep it clean. And that's, that's a real thing. That's like an XPRIZE-type concept of, hey, we're going to give you money if you come up with technology that's going to be profitable for these companies to do what they need to do. I think there may be some challenge there, uh, having been having seen a couple of places where that type of thing started to occur and then failed. The reason is a lot of the pollution from rare earth mining comes from the mere fact that you've exposed the, the soil and you've exposed the rocks where the rare earth, the rare earth, by the way, is mainly in rocks. I know that sounds yeah, really they have weird. to be crushed up. Yeah. But the point is you've dug out a big hole in the ground and it rains. And when you dig out a big hole in the ground, there's a lot of poisonous metals and materials in there that are not of any, used to anybody just like there are when you do deep strip mining for iron ore and when the rain builds up that water's got to go someplace and it generally tends to flow downhill and then what do you <laughs> generally do, so what do you do with all that water that can't be drunk and would poison the people downstream and that's that's one of the big problems with my rare earth mining um uh, I guess if you found a lot of rare earth out in the desert someplace it would be cool but well, this not, is the the Mountain Pass Mine is in the desert, but it's still up in a mountain. It still rains there and it still snows up there and they still have a lot of water that ultimately would accumulate in the hole in the ground and then go someplace. That's what happened with the coal mines in West Virginia. Uh, it's happened in a lot of places uh, where the water running out of the big strip mines where they were doing coal extraction basically did a really good job of cleaning all the fish and the people uh, downstream out. Yeah. Because they were, it was poison. It was poisonous water. And we've just got to, but we had, you know, we faced the same problem with fracking for a long time. What right. do you do with the water? As you said, somebody finally figured out what to do with it, how to recycle it. It's still expensive. And that's why oil has to say, stay generally above about $40 a barrel for the frackers to be able to make money because it's, they, they have costs. It's not a matter of just like it used to be, just pump the oil out of the ground and use it, which had, once you've drilled the hole and you start the pump, the cost dropped to near zero to get that oil out of the ground. 
It's not true with fracking. You've got to get rid of that poisonous stuff that you pumped out of the ground too. Yeah. Yeah. And the, all of that kind of comes back to regulation with, with some moderation recognize that business needs to go forward and subsidies sounds like we're demanding more government spending. This is like infrastructure stuff. This is an investment. The amount of tax revenue that comes out of these plants across the entire tech world as we bring in uh, more profits because the rare earth metals or minerals are coming here or coming from here. That's an in massive tax revenue boost. So, from the perspective of an economist, this is an investment by a government. If you're just subsidizing coal because other technologies are doing better than coal, so you want to make it cheaper to buy coal so people don't lose their jobs, that's the bad use because you're not going to get much out of that. Your technology's moved beyond it. I think it's important to realize that if, in the name of the public good, if you say there's something we absolutely have to have, we need it, but in the name of the public good, we're going to make it a lot more expensive for you to get it out of the ground. That's an appropriate position for the government to give some assistance. If you would like to contact us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice through the firm, the Personal Wealth Coach, to people directly, um, mostly people with pretty good high net worth. Uh, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we have voicemail waiting during the weekend, real live people during the week, locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can listen to recordings of the radio program, look at our podcasts, read our newsletter, sign up for all that stuff. Or email us directly or contact form uh, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com.